Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening is a priest in the Roman Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where he is director of the Respect Life Office, Continuing Formation for Clergy and Diaconal Formation. Father Paul Schenk was raised Jewish. He was baptized at 16 years old and was ordained in the Evangelical Anglican tradition. A former Anglican minister, Father Schenk is founder with Father Frank Pavone of the National Pro-Life Center on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where he acted as chairman for 20 years. Today, he conducts pro-life ministry in three capital cities, Harrisburg, Annapolis, and Washington, D.C., as well as throughout the country. He and his family came to the Catholic Church in the year 2004. Please join me in welcoming back Father Paul Schenk. Thank you very much, Andy, and thank you, Monica, and thank you for to all uh, for your very kind and warm invitation uh, back. Uh, I guess it's been enough time that you forgot, and uh, <laughs> give me another, another chance, another opportunity. And uh, we have a very, very big topic tonight, so I think we should move uh, right into it, because we have a lot to explore in this subject of the Pope and the Jews, uh, I've titled my lecture, Was Pius Twelfth Hitler's Pope? This is uh, a subject that comes very close uh, to home. Some years ago, uh, I was invited to join a businessman on a trip to Eastern Europe uh, and to the western pale of old Russia, Belarus, to the city of Minsk. My grandfather came from Minsk and lived there until he was 14 years old. and. Uh, fled with uh, an aunt, uh, his parents, my great-grandparents of blessed memory, would not come uh, for eight more years, but um, he was able to escape uh, at a time when Jews belonged to the Tsar and had no permission to move about or to leave the country. Uh, and so, by begging, borrowing, and bribing, they were able to leave. This businessman knew that I had roots in Belarus, and uh, he said, come along with me. Then at the last minute, he had to change his plans, 
And uh, he contacted me and said, the whole trip is paid for. Go and take someone along with you. So I took my firstborn son, Ariel David, and he and I traveled through the shtetls of the western pale of Russia where our ancestors came from. And I met in Minsk while I was visiting the Jewish community a man by my uncle's name, Levin. He invited me to his home. Uh, we had quite a large conversation uh, and he confirmed that they had family members that left Belarus at about the same time, the early uh, part of the 20th century for the United States. And so we could make a safe assumption that we were related to one another. And he took me to his home. He was a scientist. He had uh, uh, taught himself English and spoke quite well, but his mother spoke only Russian and Yiddish, as I remember my great-grandmother spoke only Russian and Yiddish. So we sat at the table in very meager uh, circumstances, a small apartment, a single light bulb uh, hanging over the uh, dining table. And when we finished the meal, his mother, who was quite elderly, uh, at the end of the table, she sat silently as we spoke to one another in English. And I, I said to him, if you don't mind my asking, I said, you're quite young, your mother is quite aged, did your parents meet after the war? And he fell silent, and he looked at his mother, who didn't have any idea what I had just asked, and he said, no. He said, I had five siblings before me. He said, when the Nazis came to Minsk, they gathered all the Jewish children, and they buried them alive and they forced my parents to watch. He said, we never speak of this in my family. We never speak of it. And we didn't speak of it again that night or any time thereafter. So the, the magnitude of the Nazi evil cannot be measured. And it is against this darkness that we consider the light of the church and in particular of the venerable Pius XII. The German theater producer, filmmaker, and leftist propagandist Erwin Piscator was responsible for producing the obscure play by an unknown playwright that fixed the minds of baby boomers and opinion leaders. An image of Pope Pius XII that has endured for more than 60 years. Piscator, who ran a dramatic workshop at New York's New School, began his career as an, iconic, an iconoclast and social critic, producing plays with a deliberate leftist bent. When Hitler came to power, 
Piscator fled to Moscow and produced Soviet films. He eventually immigrated to the US. He returned to West Germany during the McCarthy years, but worked in Broadway theater until his death in 1966. In 1963, to great international acclaim, Piscator produced a play by the relatively unknown German playwright Rolf Hochuth, Der Stellvertreter, or The Deputy, portrays Pope Pius XI's Secretary of State, Cardinal Eugenio Pacelli, who became Pope Pius XII as a sly and calculating deal-maker who pledges silence about Nazi atrocities in exchange for protection of church properties and programs. Pacelli was elected pope on the 2nd of March, 1939, in a conclave that lasted less than 24 hours. Taking Peter's chair in the Ides of March, he was destined to be the pope with whom the apostate, most notorious dictator in history would have to deal. For his part, Pius XII, who <coughs> would have to protect the church from Hitler while saving Europe at the same time. As vicar of Christ and universal pastor of the church, he would be personally responsible for the lives of two-thirds of the world's Catholics and every church of ancient Christendom. And then there were the Jews, first persecuted, then enslaved, and finally exterminated. They were his responsibility as well. The new pope literally carried the weight of the whole world on his shoulders. The theater producer Piscator and the playwright Hochuth both believed that Cardinal Pacelli, Pope Pius XII, failed to bear that burden and in exchange for safeguarding the church's interests, sold out the Jews, effectively sealing their fate. For Piscator and Hochuth and their counterculture and left-leaning audiences, Pius XII was Hitler's pope. British journalist and Catholic John Cornwell's 1999 book, Hitler's Pope, assumed Hochuth's narrative and reasserts the idea of Pius's acquiescence to the Nazis in exchange for the preservation of the church's assets. How was it that the opinion of two German thespians became the prevailing opinion of an entire worldwide generation. And even more importantly, is that opinion correct or even plausible? And if not, why has it prevailed? This is what we will attempt to explore tonight. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I subscribed myself to this opinion before and for some time after I became a Catholic. Ironically, it was a conservative rabbi who convincingly changed my mind. So we begin 
with the church and the Jewish people. First, we need some context. The long history of the church with the Jewish people is fraught with misunderstanding, conflict, mutual recriminations, and sinful and ungodly mistreatment. Pope St. John Paul II said that the Catholic Church breathes with two lungs, one from the East, the other from the West. If the lungs then, which draw the Church's breath of life, are Greek and Latin, the Church's heart, her life-giving blood, must be Jewish. After all, her Savior was Jewish. His mother and foster father were Jewish. His disciples, Jewish, or Ger Toshav, Gentiles who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church reveres the Hebrew scriptures and daily recites the Psalms of David. Our catechism states, when she delves into her own mystery, the church discovers her link with the Jewish people. The first to hear the word of God. The Jewish faith is already a response to God's revelation in the Old Covenant. To the Jews belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. For the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Catechism of the Catholic Church, 839. For all this, and incalculably more, the Catholic Church is eternally indebted. To strike then at the Jewish people is to strike at the very heart of God. The church winces in anguish at the memory of the persecution and murder of the Jews and all who perished with them at the hands of the Nazis and their collaborators. She grieves for the injustices, the deprivations, and the suffering of the people of Israel. And the church remembers and pledges never to forget the greatest offense committed against any peoples in the history of humanity, the Shoah, or the Holocaust. The Catholic Church acknowledges her own culpability in historically tolerating and even fostering anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, and she weeps for the sins of her children against their siblings. More than 30 years ago, the bishops of the United States issued a statement recalling the Second Vatican Council's historic document, Nostra Aetate, addressing the church's relation to the Jews. In their statements, the bishops said this, the Council's call is an acknowledgement of the conflicts and tensions that have separated Christians and Jews through the centuries and of the Church's determination, as far as possible,
to eliminate them. It serves both in word and action as a recognition of the manifold sufferings and injustices inflicted upon the Jewish people by Christians in our own times as well as in the past. It speaks from the highest level of the church's authority to serve notice that injustices directed against the Jews at any time from any source can never receive Catholic sanction or support. The meaning of the Holocaust, which were, name has been somewhat divested by the Jewish community. Holocaust, of course, is the German term that was introduced by Martin Luther in his first German translation of the Old Testament for the burnt offering. But the burnt offering was offered voluntarily by a worshiper to the God of Israel. The term Shoah, which was presciently used by St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, Edith Stein, in her appeal to Pope Pius XI, she used the German equivalent of the term now embraced by the Jewish community, Shoah, which is best translated by our English word, calamity. The Shoah must never be missed or forgotten. With the 20th century fading fast into the past, new generations may lose the sharp contrast between good and evil that the memory of the Shoah displays. The single worst example of genocide, the Nazi plan of extermination of the Jewish people, and others they deemed subhumans, calls us to examine ourselves as a human race and community, to see if we still harbor any of the destructive attributes that led to the Kristallnacht, the anti-Jewish laws, and the so-called final solution. As difficult as it may be for contemporary society to look again and again to the trains, the camps, and the ovens, we must return there again and again to guard ourselves against a complacency that would lead to similar barbarism. The crimes of the Nazis began with a false understanding of humanity that there are grades or different values between people. This wrong idea that human beings differ from each other in dignity, importance, or worth because of their religious beliefs, political ideas, ethnic origins, physical form, customs, or condition of dependency must be totally rejected as contrary and contradictory to a moral and democratic society. Our contemporary world, striving as it is to be more and more open to all people, celebrating rather than rejecting the rich ethnic, cultural, and religious diversity of the human community, must forever denounce the perverse 
Nazi idea that some kind of people are superior to other kinds. The church teaches that all human persons are to be respected and protected because human life, as St. John Paul, another survivor of the Third Reich, so eloquently wrote, human life is always a good inasmuch as man, although formed from the dust of the earth, is a manifestation of God in the world, a sign of his presence, a trace of his glory. Commending the church's 1998 document titled, We Remember, Reflections on the Shoah, Pope St. John Paul wrote, it is my fervent hope that the document will indeed help to heal the wounds of past misunderstandings and injustices. May it enable memory to play its necessary part in the process of shaping a future in which the unspeakable iniquity of the Shoah will never again be possible. May the Lord of history guide the efforts of Catholics and Jews and all men and women of goodwill as they work together for a world of true respect for the life and dignity of every human being, for all have been created in the image and likeness of God. Now these documents, papal and episcopal statements, make clear the church's attitude toward the Jewish people, theologically, historically, and contemporaneously. They also make very clear the church's understanding of the enormity of the evil perpetrated against the Jews by the European fascists during World War II. But the question remains, was it always that way? And what did the church do or not do to prevent or end the annihilation of the Jewish people by Hitler and the Nazis. So let's look now at Hitler and the Jews. Hitler's use of the Jews as scapegoats for Germany's devastation after World War I is complex. Scholars and historians offer three predominant reasons or causes for his singling out the Jews for the most ferocious of his reprisals. Most agree that Hitler's most formative years were spent as a young man in Vienna, 1908 to 1913. Though some of its most prominent citizens were Jews, among them Sigmund Freud and Gustav Mahler, and Jews made up nearly 10% of the population. Vienna was a center of virulent cultural and political anti-Semitism. When Hitler lived there, the mayor, Karl Luger, was openly anti-Jewish, as was much of the press. Vienna had expelled the Jews in the 17th century, readmitting them 200 years later but confining them to a ghetto. Hitler was both impressionable and ambitious and was likely influenced by Viennese anti-Semitism. Germany's defeat in World War I and its adverse impact on its economy, military, 
and most of all, its pride, angered Hitler and his peers. He believed that the Weimar Republic was weak and ineffectual, and was so opposed to it that he joined a conspiracy to overthrow it. It failed, and Hitler and his co-conspirators were convicted. During his 10 months in prison, he wrote Mein Kampf, a dizzying diatribe in which he laid blame for Germany's troubles on a handful of non-German agitators, mostly the Jews. Lastly, Hitler believed in racial superiority. He glommed onto a popular pseudoscience of social Darwinism and of Arianism, the idea that the lightest skinned peoples who emerged from the Near East and settled in Middle Europe were superior to all others. Though the races Hitler identified were invalid fictions, he nonetheless found that dividing people according to supposed race supported his German populism and effectively diverted blame. A skilled orator and fiery public personality, he was able to use the Jews as foils on his way to political power. When he came to power in 1933, he and his National Socialist German Workers' Party began enacting laws restricting Jews and curtailing their rights. The persecution and abuse of the Jews would continue to intensify, leading to the so-called final solution. Now the church and Hitler. In the years between World War I and World War II, the Catholic Church in Germany had a tenuous relationship with the government. Weimar left religious matters to the various states, several of which signed concordats with the Vatican that assured religious liberty and permitted Catholic education. Still, the governments were Protestant and favored Protestantism. The dark legacy of religious persecutions and wars besmirched the long Christian heritage of Germany. Hitler and his henchmen denounced Catholicism and were suspicious of Lutheranism. In fact, the Nazis rejected ecumenical Christianity as an aberration of Aryan religion and promoted what they called positive Christianity, which was an amalgamation of Lutheranism German folk religion, and racial Aryanism. Hitler and the Nazi party rejected a majority of traditional Christian doctrines, including the Incarnation, and all Jewish elements, including the entire Old Testament. While Hitler publicly claimed to be a Christian and believe in God, Few historians accept those claims as genuine. Most see Hitler as skeptical of religion, that he only used religious jargon to gain and preserve his political power. In the last years of World War I, Benedict XV dispatched Father Eugenio Pacelli, a Vatican diplomat and secretary, as nuncio 
first to Munich in 1917, then to Berlin in 1925. Father Pacelli had joined the diplomatic corps under Leo XIII and was entrusted with the dossier of the Church of France, a very, very important role. He then became secretary for extraordinary ecclesiastical affairs. He was sent to the Emperor of Germany so that he might mitigate the negative impacts of World War I on the German church and people. In his 12 years as senior Vatican representative, he came to know the German church, culture, and political landscape intimately. He understood full well the country's problems and was particularly attached to the people. In many ways, Father Pacelli had a German soul, an ironclad mind, firm memory, and penchant for organization and administration. Pius XI recalled Monsignor Pacelli to Rome in 1929. He was made Cardinal and appointed Secretary of State. The following year, the parliamentary coalition that governed Germany disintegrated and new elections were held. The biggest winner was Hitler's National Socialists, increasing their seats from 12 to 107, making them Germany's second largest political party. Hitler was on the move upward and Cardinal Pacelli would be waiting for him. When Hitler came to power, he proposed a concordat with the Vatican. Historians believe his motives included a desire to have his regime appear more prestigious to world powers and to negotiate an end to the center party, which was dominated by priests and which opposed legislation granting him dictatorial powers. Hitler was aware that Pius XI disfavored Catholic political parties and priests participating in them. By eliminating, or at least weakening the centrists, he had a better chance of passing the Ermachtugungesetz, the Enabling Act, giving him ultimate powers. The reasons for the Vatican's favoring the Concordat were to give the church stronger legal standing, protecting Catholic education, and guaranteeing religious freedom. Cardinal Pacelli was responsible for the negotiations and final draft of the Concordat, which was signed July 20th, 1933. The Nazis guaranteed the right to Catholic education. Seminarians were exempted from the Arbeitsdienst the mandatory labor, and were given uninhibited freedom of action for all Catholic, religious, cultural, and educational organizations. There were two secret clauses not announced to the public, one endorsing a common front against Russia, and the other exempting priests from conscription. Cardinal Pacelli strenuously tried to protect Catholics of Jewish heritage, but was only given verbal assurances. The British diplomat Sir Robert Clive met with Cardinal Pacelli during and after the negotiations and later wrote this, 
I had the impression that his eminence regarded the Nazi regime not without anxiety. As he said more than once that the church had every reason to be satisfied, provided the German government remained true to its undertaking. As Hitler consolidated his powers, dissolved the Republic, fashioned the Reich, and belligerently aggrandized German power and borders, the Cardinal was being personally formed to succeed his sponsor and mentor. He would become Pius XII on the 2nd of March in 1939, between Hitler's Reichstag speech forewarning, quote, the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe and his secretive plans to invade Poland. In the days between Cardinal Pacelli's election and his investiture as Pope, Nazi Germany took Memeland from Lithuania, declared all of Eastern Europe within German jurisdiction, marched on Bohemia and Moravia, and dissolved Czechoslovakia. The church in Central Europe was now firmly within Hitler's grasp. There was no time to lose. The newly elected Pius XII was forced to convene not one, not two, but three conferences with the German cardinals in the nine days between his election and his coronation. In the third conference, he told the cardinals that he reserved the matters of the German church to himself exclusively. In August of 1940, the Holy Father wrote to a German Episcopal conference about the dangers facing the church in Nazi Germany. Quote, a thousand influences opposed to the church and to Christ in speech, in writing, and in attitude constantly flow from a more or less de-Christianized society upon the souls of believers. It subjects them to a moral pressure which, accompanied by coercion and harassment, often forces them to undergo trials that demand heroic fidelity to their faith." End quote. In the face of such threats, Pope Pius urged the German bishops to remain resolute, unified, and to be courageous in their struggle to preserve the truth. However, he also recognized that overt acts of resistance, or even words of resistance, would expose Catholics to further reprisals and persecutions. In a letter dated April 22, 1940, the Holy Father wrote to the Bishop Prising of Berlin regarding Vatican radio broadcasts that were inciting the Nazis. Quote, to be sure, we do not want to impose useless sacrifices on German Catholics who already are so oppressed for the sake of their faith. And so we have suspended these broadcasts till we can safely evaluate their pros and cons. We would be very appreciative if you would communicate to us your judgment, so valued, and your experience concerning this matter." 
end quote. As pastor and protector of the church, a seasoned and expert diplomat, and European head of state, Pope Pius XII was boxed in between a rock and a hard place. On February 20th, 1941, he wrote to Bishop Preising, times are hard, and especially for the Vicar of Christ, and that the papacy and the church are slowly being placed into a complex and perilous situation where the Pope wants to cry out loud and strong, it is expectation and silence that are unhappily imposed on him. Where he would act and give assistance, it is patience and waiting imposed upon him." Close quote. Pius XII continuously worked back channels to promote peace and to mitigate the suffering of all the people of Germany and Europe. In a letter to the Archbishop of Freiburg, dated March 1, 1941, he commended the Archbishop's pastoral letter in which he addressed, quote, not only exclusive Christian and Catholic values, but also the highest moral principles of human existence and dignity, end quote. This was evidently a reference to the plight of all peoples, especially the Jews. But how do we know? So let us look now at Pius XII and the Shoah. To understand Pius XII's attitude toward the suffering of the Jewish people, we have to return to his predecessor, Pius XI who in 1937 responded to the odd liminar visit of the German bishops by issuing the encyclical letter Mit Bernender Sorgi, The Church and the German Reich. Written in German rather than Latin, which was the usual practice, it was read on Palm Sunday in all the German parishes. It is a sweeping condemnation of the Nazis and a firm defense of the Jews. Its striking language is too prolific to discuss in a short address such as this, but we must review some salient quotes. Quote, whoever exalts race or the people, in German this would be the Volk, or the state, or a particular form of state, or the depositories of power, or any other fundamental value of the human community, however necessary and honorable be their function in worldly things, whoever raises these notions above their standard value and divinizes them to an idolatrous level distorts and perverts an order of the world planned and created by God. He is far from the true faith in God and from the concept of life which that faith upholds. Quote, whoever wishes to see banished from the church and school 
the biblical history and the wise doctrines of the Old Testament blasphemes the name of God, blasphemes the Almighty's plan of salvation, and makes limited and narrow human thought the judge of God's design over the history of the world, he denies his faith in the true Christ. As commentary to this passage, condemning the Nazi perversion of Christianity without the Jewish scriptures, we must add remarks made by Pius XI to Belgian pilgrims on September 6, 1938. Quote, At the most solemn moment of the Mass, we recite the prayer which contains the expression sacrifice of Abel, sacrifice of Abraham, sacrifice of Melchizedek. In three strokes, still quoting Pius XI, in three strokes, three times, three steps, the entire religious history of mankind, a magnificent passage. Every time we read it, we are seized by an irresistible emotion. The sacrifice of our patriarch Abraham. Note that Abraham is called our patriarch, our ancestor. Anti-Semitism is incompatible with the thought and the sublime reality expressed in this text. It is alien to us, a movement in which we Christians can have no part. The promise was made to Abraham and to his descendants. It is realized in Christ and through Christ in us who are members of his mystical body. Through Christ and in Christ, we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. No, it is not possible for Christians to take part in anti-Semitism. We acknowledge for all the right to defend themselves, to adopt measures of protection against what threatens their legitimate interests. But anti-Semitism is inadmissible. Spiritually, we are Semites. End quote. Now, Pius XI was gravely ill at this point. The words of both Mick Brenender Sorge, as well as his words regarding the immorality and impermissibility of anti-Semitism, are mostly credited by historians to Cardinal Pacelli. Internal Vatican documents seem to support this theory. The fact that the encyclical was published in German is also attributed to Pacelli, who would be Pope Pius XII. The encyclical was universally praised by the Western democracies and especially by the worldwide Jewish leadership and press. Although Pius XI, relying on the drafts prepared by Cardinal Pacelli, does not mention Hitler or the Nazis by name, it was virtually universally understood to be a condemnation of their actions against the Jews. Pius XI's words to the Belgian pilgrims 
were received with equal acclaim by Europe's Jewish communities. Pius XII issued his own encyclical, Sumi Pontificatus, on October 20th, 1939. Without referring to Hitler or the Nazi party by name, he explicitly condemned the idea of racial superiority, the supremacy of the state, and the secular state against the church. So let us hear a few salient quotes from this prescient document. Quote, the nations, despite a difference of development due to diverse conditions of life and of culture, are not destined to break the unity of the human race. Quote, an error, today abundantly widespread, is disregard for the law of human solidarity and charity, dictated and imposed both by our common origin and by the equality in rational nature of all men, whatever nation they belong to. Quote, but there is yet another error no less pernicious to the well-being of the nations and to the prosperity of that great human society which gathers together and embraces within its confines all races. It is the error contained in those ideas which do not hesitate to divorce civil authority from every kind of dependence upon the supreme being first source and absolute master of man and of society, and from every restraint of a higher law derived from God as its first source. Now, according to Rabbi David Dahlin, writing in his book, The Myth of Hitler's Pope, Joseph Lichten, the Anti-Defamation League's Rome representative wrote a monograph in 1963 which rebuts the claims of Holchuth's play, The Deputy, and demonstrates Pius XII's actions on behalf of the Jews. Rabbi Dahlin also cites the Hungarian Jewish historian Jeno Levy in his book, Hungarian Jewry and the Papacy. Pius XII did not remain silent. Levy writes about being present when Cardinal Pacelli delivered a series of public addresses in Budapest condemning Nazi racism. According to Dahlin, Levy also relies on Hungarian war archives demonstrating how the papal nuncio, Pacelli, and the bishops, quote, intervened again and again on behalf of the Jews on the explicit instructions. I'm sorry, the, the nuncio was serving Pope Pius XII by that time uh, on explicit instructions from Pius XII. <coughs> Rabbi Dalin points to the Israeli diplomat, historian, and scholar Pinchas Lapid, and this is a name that is quite familiar to me from my childhood who was the Israeli consul in Milan for a time, 
who wrote in his 1967 book, Three Popes and the Jews, that Pius XII, quote, was instrumental in saving at least 700,000, but probably as many as 860,000 Jews from certain death at Nazi hands. That from one of the most prominent Israeli diplomats. The Shoah, the Holocaust of the Jews of Europe at the hands of Hitler and the Nazis, is an immense and daunting topic to address in a brief lecture. The role of Pius XII and the Catholic Church in Europe before, during, and after World War II is equally daunting. We have only just lightly touched on those topics tonight. There are so many sources, so many experts, and so many critics, we could easily develop a graduate course and still leave too much behind. There's an idea for the curriculum, Andy. <laughs> Suffice it to say that there is substantial evidence to demonstrate that Venerable Pope Pius XII, Eugenio Cardinal Pacelli, while throughout the war understandably reticent and discreet, nonetheless worked to protect the church and to prevent the persecution and extermination of the Jews. In our era of satellite radio, the blogosphere, and presidential tweet storms, we find it difficult, if not impossible, to understand silence and restraint as a strategy. It was no less the case at the advent of television, when Hochhuth's play debuted. And even in Pius's own time, some bishops in Europe protested the Holy Father's discretion. In times of tumult and tragedy, people want to hear from their leaders. For his part, Pius believed that speaking out publicly would only further antagonize Hitler and provoke more reprisals, resulting in more deaths and devastation. In several instances, he was proven correct. But was there more that the Pope might have done? Might Cardinal Pacelli have demanded that all Jews, not just baptized, be protected from anti-Semitic policies? Should he have more frequently and explicitly condemned Hitler by name and the Nazi party? Before the war, as late as 1941, no Western power imagined the implementation of genocide as a national policy. Pius XII was an expert diplomat, a European Secretary of State, and ultimately Pope. He made prudential decisions always in consultation with bishops and trusted advisors, doing his utmost to protect the faithful and to rescue the innocent. It was Rabbi Dahlin's thorough research using Jewish, not Catholic, sources that disabused me of the falsity of Hochhuth and Piscator's distortions of Pius XII's World War II legacy. The rabbi clearly demonstrates that Pius XII 
was a defender of freedom and friend of the Jewish people. The Holy Father had the enormous responsibility of protecting God's people in an atheist, neo-pagan, war-ravaged, and dictatorial Europe. In retrospect, it seems that Eugenio Cardinal Pacelli was raised to the chair of Peter as Pius XII to meet Hitler's enormous evil head-on and in the end to best him. Thank you. Thank you so much, Father. Gosh, so many things to comment. Isn't it um, on the, the theme that you were drawing on, the two lungs with the heart, right? Our two, long, two lungs being the Eastern and Western Church, and then uh, the heart being Judaism. Isn't it striking? Uh, we read in the Gospel of John, all three are brought in harmony and union at the cross, right? There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote a title and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Peter Kreef takes that theme and runs with it in a uh, book, Back to Virtue which uh, we recommend to everyone. And that thought of the weight of the world literally being on the shoulders of the Holy Father. I don't remember to which Pope this story uh, related to, but I remember hearing in a talk someone knowing one of the Holy Fathers personally in a sort of casual, private, intimate conversation, the Holy Father revealing some of the internal struggles or the pains, the, uh, the responsibilities of of leading the church, this pope would wait till the evening to look through his mail for the day. And he would read through it at his bedside and then lay down on his bed. And he described his pillow as being like a crown of thorns. We can't let this kind of uh, weight slip from our senses, right? Um, with any of our popes, they deserve our respect, our prayer, um, our reverence. I think we find sometimes jokes or comments being made in our current situation that we can't let fly. I'm not talking about the dubia. I'm talking about things that are just offhand, a joke here, a joshing there. If you've got a problem with the Father, when was the last time we fasted for him? Right? We've got to be supporting our spiritual father, right? And I think we see just a little glimpse of the complexities of some of the things our Holy Father deals with day in, day out. All right. Does anyone have any questions? Father, um, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, are you aware of the work of Gary Krupp uh, on this topic? Uh, I understand. Yeah, just want to yes. find out. I, I, yes, I, I, I'm familiar, but I haven't read. I haven't read Grop, but I'm familiar with him as a, a source. But I can't comment any further because I'm not familiar with the writing. Father, in what ways did you uh, 
did the Pope uh, save those 700,000, 850,000 lives of the Jews? Oh, it isn't one single strategy or one single. There was a very wide network of, of secret houses and of opening Catholic institutions. In particular, they were monasteries, convents, and um, boarding schools, as well as sacred sites that were protected uh, by the uh, Concordat. Uh, so appeal could be made to the uh, Concordat and the agreements that were made, and while it was tenuous, it was sufficient for enough time to uh, protect Jews who were, who were being transited out of Nazi-occupied areas. Now, Italy was considered a safe haven uh, for Jews, even though several thousand Italian Jews were taken to the camps. That was a violation of assurances that Mussolini had given, and so that was ended because of assurances that were made to the Pope, to Pius XII, by Mussolini. And so Italy was spared the worst of the uh, deportations. So he had given express instruction for the religious houses to protect the Jews. And you know, we came, you know, we came out with a Cardinal Archbishop of Paris from that rescue operation, who was Jewish and uh, rescued, became a Catholic, and then became Cardinal Archbishop of Paris. Cardinal Jean-Marie Lustiger, who I call Lustiger, but anyway, Lustiger, was rescued as a child, protected by sisters, and in gratitude became a Catholic and became the Cardinal Archbishop of Paris. So that was the, the, the most extensive way. There are some marvelous stories, and while we don't have an explicit connection to Pope Pius XII, surely the messages he continuously sent to the bishops would have resulted in a story such as this. A, a German engineer who was a Lutheran, his father was Catholic, his mother was Lutheran, who made an agreement with a uh, parish priest to issue baptismal certificates for every Jew he brought. He saved uh, over 3,300 Jews that way. The enormous stress and pressure resulted in the priest having a heart attack, but he sat up all through the night issuing baptismal certificates with Christian names and recording them in the sacramental books of the parish. And this was all done in a way that, in the end, these would be known to be not true witnesses to baptism, uh, but it was a way for the engineer to be able to continuously commandeer more and more slave labor from the Jews and then move them by trains out into Belgium and into uh, free territory. So this is the kind of operations that were going on behind the scenes. And as I say, Israel has put that number at between 700,000 and 860,000. I, I have to say that all of the record from Yad Vashem, from Israel, 
and from the national Jewish organizations, none of them question uh, Pius XII's bona fides in this, in this regard. Only popular culture promoted this idea. Yeah, there are many um, evidences of, of Pius XII and the Jews, many sources. I wonder if there's a way that you could list those sources on the website so that we could have um, recourse to finding some of this documentation. Yes, I, I have, I have uh, references. But where I would direct you, if you want the body of this, then get Rabbi Dahlin's book, The Myth of Hitler's Pope. You can buy it on Amazon. The Myth of Hitler's Pope. Uh, it's Rabbi Dahlin who brings all this Jewish evidence together. He's a conservative rabbi. He's not writing with a Christian, um, as a Christian apologetic. He's writing to set the record straight. So The Myth of Hitler's Pope by Rabbi David Dahlin, D-A-L-I-N. He has all the documentation. All that you'll ever need in the book. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Father. Um, frequently, it is secular Jews who are the biggest critics of Pius XII, such as you mentioned, common popular culture today, frequently media. What strategy to respond to secular Jewish friends and acquaintances when it is brought up, oh, well, what did the Catholics do during uh, the Holocaust and the Second World War? Well, I don't want to be funny, but if they say, what, what did the Catholics do, just tell them. But if what you mean is they say, why didn't the Catholics do something? First of all, if somebody says, well, Pius XII you know, was Hitler's pope, my father taught me to um, respond to unfounded claims by simply responding, what makes you say that? And my father told me that eight times out of 10, you'll be met with silence. <laughs> because they don't know why they say it. They just say it because it's been said to them. So you say, what makes you say that? Give them a moment, be charitable, jump in <laughs> at some point. Because that, that silence will become very painful and you don't want to torture them. So, so you say, well, uh, you can begin with the play by Hochuth. The reason for this impression is a play that debuted in 1963. It was a fiction. Hochuth never claims that his play is fact. It's a fiction. So you say, it's fiction. The record, and then one, two, three but we can put some information on the website. But again, Rabbi Dowen's book convinced me, it will convince you, or any gainsayers, yeah. We've got a question coming online from uh, Chris Durrell. It says, Father, given the rabbis debunked Hitler's Pope so long ago, to what do you attribute the strength of this myth today? Well, our friend said secularism, and there is unquestionably a prejudice toward Catholicism in pop culture and particularly in media culture. Now, it is not by any means exclusively the view of the media culture, but it is a predominant prejudice 
in uh, media culture. So this serves to put a chink in the armor of the Catholic Church. So like many other opportunities, this is a way to strike a blow and uh, to undermine confidence. But I'm not, I'm not prepared to say that most persons, including journalists who believe this position, uh, do so out of a deliberate distortion and malice. It's the information that's been given to them over the course of an entire generation. And so they have to be disabused, as I had to be disabused. This is what I grew up with. I came from New York. Do I need to say more? <laughs> uh, so this is what I grew up with, and this is what many baby boomers have grown up with. So they have to be treated gently, but then I, I just come back to ask, why do you say this? And then give them the information. Uh, hello, I have a question that ties uh, the Pope Pius XII, with the current activities in our worldwide conflicts. In reflection of Pope Pius's position of anti-Nazism, does our current church have a critical role in declaring its position of espousing peace as a principle of worldwide order in these chaotic times of potential nuclear proliferation between powers enthralled in a posture of who strikes first with weaponry designated to decimate major portions of our universe? The short answer <laughs> is amen. The longer answer is that the circumstances that we face today, as dire as they are, and they are dire, because we, we cannot dismiss the belligerence between nations as just another category of blogging or tweeting. These have mammoth threatening consequences to human life and to the stability of the world. As dire as they are at the present time and the consequences, as dangerous as they are, the circumstances are significantly distinct and different from what Pius was dealing with. Pius was dealing in a situation where, first of all, the church carried a much higher esteem and therefore influence in the Europe of Pius's day than the church does in the West and the East today. But, I mean the Far East. So the consequence of a statement from the Pope or the Church was much more immediate and consequential than the Church's moral statement would be today. Why? 
because much more was invested politically in the church in Europe of Pius's day than anywhere on the planet today. In other words, today, the church is a moral messenger. In Pius's day, it was not only moral, it was political. In the sense that uh, the vast majority of Europeans were, if not faithful Catholics in soul, in spirit, and only God knows, I, you know, I wasn't there, they were loyal to the church and to the pope. So the political actors, among them Adolf Hitler, felt that in order to maintain their power, they needed to have some uh, agreement from the church, uh, or some agreement with the church, or whatever you want to say, you know, however you want to stylize that. And therefore, as I said in my, in my lecture, Pius felt that it was an essential strategy to use reticence and silence to mitigate the horrors, to mitigate the, the suffering. And uh, today that would be very different. Today that would be very different. Except in particular countries where a more careful approach may be the prudential approach. Anyway, I think that's, that's my answer to that. All right. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.